we've been talking about toxic relationships. We started off uh, with friendships, and we said, you know what, some of you are in toxic friendships. They're unhealthy. And I even suggested that it's possible that you're the unhealthy part of the friendship and that maybe you need to look at your, yourself and say, what am I bringing to the friendship? Then we talked about this idea of being raised in families, and we don't get to choose our families. And some of us were raised in healthy families, and others of us were raised in, in you know, kind of unhealthy situations. And uh, we talked about how, how, do we, how do we survive and how do we thrive in, in those situations. And last weekend we talked about the workspace. We said, you know, we need a job, I've got to pay the bills, and I don't necessarily... Uh, maybe I like my job, but I str- struggle with my boss. I struggle with my coworkers. What do I do in, in my job? And we talked about that last week. And this week I want to talk about marriage. And marriage is certainly something you get, you get to choose. You know, your family, you don't get to choose. Sometimes your job, you kind of got to take what you can get, right? But you get to choose your marriage. And I'm going to tell you something about your marriage. I'm going to tell you what I think is probably one of the greatest causes of turmoil and trouble within your marriage. And you're not going to want to hear it. You're not going to want to admit it, but it's absolutely true. And so we'll talk about that in just a minute. Someone has said that marriage is like flies on a screen. Those that are in want out, and those that are out want in, right? <laughs> so why is it that so many people who are, um, you know, so devoted and so excited about getting marriage, getting married, uh, they, they have such great intentions, uh, their marriages end so disastrously? I've never sat down with people, counseled them, and talked with them and said, Hey, um, what's, your, what's your vision? What's your goal for marriage? Oh, we want to have a disastrous marriage. We want to have a miserable relationship. And we're, we're not expecting this to last more than, oh, maybe a couple of years. And then we're going to move on. Nobody ever comes in there. Everybody has high hopes. And uh, I want to make a confession to you. And this is where I'm going to get to what I think is the major cause of problems within any marriage. And by the way, I just want to say to you, maybe you're single here. Maybe you're never going to get married. Uh, this principle that I'm going to talk about is absolutely applicable to any relationship, but it's certainly applicable to a marriage relationship. I want to make a confession to you. The biggest problem, uh, the biggest problem in my marriage, and I'm going to tell you what it is, it's me. And the same is the problem in your marriage. And the biggest problem that I bring into the marriage, into our marriage, is my selfishness. Absolutely, completely, totally that. And if you're honest, when you lay your head on the pillow at night, you, you, if you do a deep dive into your own psyche, your own soul, you'll agree that the issues that you have with your marriage, because you can't change your partner, but you can change who you are and what you bring into the relationship. The biggest problem that you have in a marriage, in, in your marriage right now, is you. And it's probably, uh, it probably goes to your selfishness. We often hear that uh, money, in-laws, sex, addictions, um, sickness will destroy marriage, and they can. But uh, at the root of those things, many times, is, is selfishness, really. What it, it's really what it comes down to. Um, because what we, what we don't want to admit, and what we need to admit, and what I'm going to try to get you to see, at least entertain the possibility, that... Um, your marriage, as you enter your marriage, you're entering it and you're fundamentally, and we default to this, to selfishness. Uh, so why do so many people struggle in their marriage? Well, I think, again, there is this idea of selfishness, but it, it, it expresses itself in a number of ways. There's this idea of laziness. Um, marriage is work. There's a lot of work. 
You know, um, at times you, you want to give up, you want to throw in the towel, you want to move on. You may be one of those people who say, you know, well, the grass really looks greener over there. The grass really looks real. Look at how green the grass is over there. But I just want to tell you that there's poop over there too. <laughs> there is. There is. You can't see it. It's in there. It, but it, because it, that's what you think though. You think, man, if I was in that relationship with them, then I wouldn't be in this relationship with all this poop. And I'm just saying there's poop over there. You just can't smell it and see it. But you will when you get over there. Um, and here's the thing. Some of us were raised in a kind of a stable home, and we saw our parents, and they had kind of a, a good marriage. They worked through conflict relatively well. They, they communicated fairly well. They seemed to, like they kind of liked to be with each other. And you go, well, that's easy. And then you get married and you realize, hey, wait a minute, what happened here? This isn't easy anymore. This is hard. This, this doesn't, you know, I always, I've said to people, sometimes marriage is like golf. I can watch guys hit, the, and women, hit the ball right straight every time down the fairway. And I go, well, that looks easy. And then I get out there, I can't, I mean, I literally cannot hit a straight ball to save my life. It looks easy, but it's hard. It's hard. Maybe you were, on the other hand, you, you, you were raised in a home where your parents, maybe you were a single parent, uh, you know, uh, situation, or maybe you weren't even raised by parents. You were raised by your grandparents or whatever. But you, you, the, 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 the home that you were raised in wasn't healthy. It wasn't whole. So you, you, you kind of already have this pessimistic view of marriage. You come in and you go, oh, I don't expect great things from marriage. I just don't think good things. So you, you kind of, you get into a difficult situation and you begin, you say, okay, it's time to bail. And you keep bailing and bailing and bailing. Pretty next thing you know, you look down the road and you've been in three different marriages and you're the one you're in right now is really going real well. Well, that's what happens. Or, you know, some people have unrealistic expectations. And our culture just manufactures this. They have this concept out there that there's this Prince Charming or there's this princess out there and that if you just can find the right person, then, then every, your, all your problems will go away. Um, what they don't see is that marriage is really two flawed people coming together to create some sort of space for stability, love, and, and um, consolation that it's not that easy. Uh, some people think that, oh, there's my soulmate out there. And the problem is I just haven't found my soulmate. But when I find my soulmate, um, they will heal me. And they probably will not heal you. Um, here's the problem. When we go into a marriage with those kind of expectations, with that much, um, we're asking the other person to kind of almost be God and to fill our, you know, if we have a low self-image, we want them to build us up. Uh, we want to feel secure. We want to feel uh, significant. We want to feel loved. And, uh, but we put all of that, and, and, and we, we're really not looking to God, but we're looking to them. We're just setting ourselves up for failure. Um, no one can, uh, no one can live up to those expectations. And when we overdesire marriage, and we get into it, and we have these expectations, unreal expectations for another person, uh, they're going to fail us, and they're going to let us down. So what do you do then? Uh, now you get a problem, right? So, um, but like I said, selfishness is probably the biggest reason why many marriages fail today. Um, we we. We enter into marriage with a self-serving attitude. We want a me marriage. We want marriage to be all about me. And <laughs> we must understand, though, there's a rad radical... Within the human heart, within the human soul, there's a default to a selfishness. 
that we kind of really are very good about looking out for ourselves and taking care of ourselves. And maybe if we have time, we'll get around to you. And, and that's kind of the way we default. And that's uh, kind of disastrous when you go into a marriage that way. What we have to understand is that two people who enter any marriage are spiritually broken by sin, um, which means that we're going to be self-centered. Um, the main problem in many marriages today, and, and I think it's an ever-present problem in every marriage, is our own selfishness. And so I think you... Now, you're going to leave today and you go, well, I already knew that. Well, you did know that, hopefully. maybe, But maybe you haven't come to grips with it. And, you know, the verse, uh, the passage that uh, just a lot of people read is 1 Corinthians 13. And notice what the, the Apostle Paul says. Love, love is patient and kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It is not rude. It is not self-seeking. Can I retranslate that? It's not selfish. It is not easily angered. It keeps no records of wrongs. That's verses 4 through 5 of chapter 13. Um, so the, even the Apostle Paul said, if you enter into this marriage and you, it's a me marriage, um, you're in trouble. If, you're, if you default to selfishness, you're in trouble. This is, you're just setting yourself up for failure. You're setting the other person up for frustration in you also. Um, but here's the thing. The good news is this, and, and this, is, this is why we're here today. Because the Bible tells us that because of the gospel, there's hope. Because of the, you know, because of the gospel, you could have been raised in a very poor. You could, maybe you didn't have a, 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 a your parents didn't have a good marriage, but you know what? You can't. Uh, we have friends. Uh, we have a number of friends who came from homes that were al- there was alcoholism. There was one parent homes, and they have created loving, wonderful marriages. And it's taken a lot of work, but they've broken the patterns of the past, and that's what the gospel will do. So there is a tremendous amount of hope. I don't really care. Uh, I mean, I care, but I don't. That's not the thing that's going to limit you. The, the limiting isn't what happened to you in the past in your parents' relationship or in your home, but what, what are you going to choose to do in your marriage? And really, it is a choice, and we'll get to choice and feelings in a moment. So the question is, how do you bring uh, healing to your marriage? Because maybe you're in a marriage right now, and you go, our marriage right now is it, it sucks. It's, it's I just don't like it. It's and, and, you know, I'm not going to give you the answer for the other person. By the way, if you leave this place and you think, boy, I wish, and your partner's not here, I wish they were here, you just totally missed the point of what I was saying. Because, you know what? You can't change them, and if they're not here, they're not here. And you are. And that's what I'm talking about. <laughs> Philippians 2, page 900, because this isn't, this isn't often a passage we would go through go to on marriage, but on page 900 of the chair Bible, it's Philippians chapter 2. I'm going to start reading verse 3. And what Paul does here, many people believe this was an early church confession, that the early church used this kind of as a creed or a confession, (coughs) especially as you get down a little bit. (coughs) But I think this just gives us the example of how we are to enter into any relationship, friendship, um, marriage, whatever, and, and notice what he says in verse 3. Don't be selfish. <laughs> okay, we'll just stop. Let's walk out the door and let's not be selfish, right? <laughs> Don't try to impress others. Be humble, thinking of others as better than yourselves. Don't look out for your own interests, but take on the interests of others too. Doesn't it seem like he's just saying the same thing over in different ways? Like, okay, she didn't get it. Let me just say it in another way. Don't be selfish. Don't be selfish. 
Don't be selfish, right? But notice what he says. You must have the same attitude that Christ Jesus had. Though he was God, he did not think of equality with God as something to, be, to cling to. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges. He took a, the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being. When he appeared in human form, he humbled himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on the cross. What Paul's essentially saying is the king of the universe, the one who created the heavens and the earth, the one who created us in his image, the one who um, has a plan and a purpose for our lives, the one who sustains the world. Without him alive, we would not have another breath today because he holds the world in his hand. He got off of his throne and came to earth. He came to his own creation. He came to his own people. And what did his own people do? They didn't say, hey, we're so glad you're here. They executed him like a common criminal on a cross. He humbled himself to the point of a ridiculous death for the God of the universe. Can you imagine it? The God of the universe was executed on a criminal's cross. It's unbelievable. It's just just staggering. And Paul basically says, if you want a picture of humility, there it is, right before your eyes. So three things we'll draw from this passage. Number one, determine that your marriage is a sacred covenant between you, your spouse, and God. The problem in our society today, in our pop culture today, is marriage has become a consumer agreement. Uh, Now, we do the covenantal vows in our marriage ceremony, but it's become a consumer relationship. We basically said, I will love you if I love you when. I love you because. Um, but I, it, it basically we're saying, I'll love you as long as. But as, if, if, you stop, if you stop, or if you don't deliver, or if I can find someone else who does it better, then I'm out of here. Because it's almost like a food chain or a grocery chain. You say, well, the prices are good. The parking is, is, is convenient. Um, they have a nice selection. Um, I like shopping there. And then all of a sudden it's under new management and think the prices change and the parking is not so good and it's crowded and it's, I don't want to go here. Or I'm going to go find another place. And we treat marriage that way. That's, that's a consumer relationship um, but um, that's uh, what marriage has become. If, as long as you, you do what you're supposed to do, then we'll stay together. But uh, if somebody better comes along or if you stop doing what you're supposed to do, then, then I have the right to get out of this. That's the consumer view of marriage. I mean, as long as you keep your part of the agreement. But if you fail to deliver... I'm free to move on and find someone else. On the other hand, the wedding vows are not a declaration of our present love, but a, but a mutual binding promise of our future love. The wedding vows basically are not about saying, I love you right now. The wedding vows are, I will choose to love you in the future. I will choose to love you whether you're sick or not, whether you're wealthy or not, whether you, for all these different reasons. I'm not telling you that I love you today. I'm telling you I will love you tomorrow. That's what a wedding vow is. That's what a covenantal relationship is. Um, it's a, a wedding should not primarily be a celebration of how much I love you now. Rather, it's a promise of love to be fulfilled And I'm going to be true to you in the future. Even, here it comes, even when I don't feel like it. And that's another part of our society. Our society, pop culture, has turned 
love into a feeling. They've basically said as long, if, as long as you have feelings towards another person, you love them. But if you don't have those feelings anymore, you don't love them anymore. Well, that's just ridiculous. And frankly, you don't believe that, even though you might think that. You, you may think that you're going to have these... You, nobody has these high, bubbly, emotional feelings for the, the person they married their whole life. It just doesn't happen. It goes in circles. Your feelings go up and down just like temperature does around Dubuque, right? Now, that doesn't seem to play well with our culture, but here's the problem. The problem is that we default, and this is what Paul is saying, we default to selfishness. So he says in Philippians, stop being selfish. In fact, if you need an example, look to him. He wasn't selfish. And thank God that he wasn't selfish, because if he had been selfish, we'd all be dead and still in our sins. Now, we can choose to be, we can choose to be selfless, and that's really what it comes down to. What he's saying is stop being selfish, be selfless like he was. And, and by the way, you default to selfishness. And if you're not careful, you're going to be like a stupid, selfish person in a relationship. And you're the only one that can change that stupid, stupid, selfish person. You are. You are the only person to do it. By the way, if you have kids, you already do that with your kids. If you're, if you're anywhere near a decent parent, you do that. Think about that. Your new child is the neediest human being you've ever met. They need your care every second of the day, 24 hours a day, seven days a week for the next 18 to 25 years. Or the next, yeah, 18 to 25 years. (laughs) It may be 30. We don't know yet. (laughs) So yesterday, no, it wasn't yesterday, it was Friday. Friday we went down to Iowa City to visit our grandson, uh, Jeremiah. And we watched him, Grandma and Grandpa watched him. And uh, it was fun to watch him. But i I got to be honest with you. I was a little disappointed with Jeremiah. <laughs> He's, you know, like a few months old. And all he did was lay there. He just laid there. And he wanted to be fed. And he wanted his diaper changed. And it was like he was a little bit of a drag. He didn't have a very good conversation with him. I mean, he just didn't talk about anything. And, you know, and he wouldn't even go on a bike ride with me. He, you know, it was just terribly disappointing. You get the point. You as a good parent make enormous sacrifices in your life, and yet your child for a very long time gives you absolutely nothing in return. They can't. They won't. Why? Because even when they get older, they're selfish just like you are. And while later on, a child can give you love, they can give you respect, never will they give you anything like what you have given to them. They'll never do it. And that's why some of you, when you were a child and you were struggling with your parents and then you became a parent and then you started having kids and you go oh crap (laughs) what did I do to my parents you know what did I do I can't imagine that I put them through that 
And here's the thing. In fact, oftentimes, as the children get older, they go through long stretches during which they rebel, they fall apart, and they need an enormous investment from you. And again, you get nothing out of it. But at every turn, whether or not they're giving to you, you give to them. After 18 or more years of this, even if your child is an unattractive person to everyone else, you can't help but love them. Why? Because you've made this investment of love over those years. You've invested your life in them. And though you may hate certain things about them, you love them dearly. Now, there are days as a parent you wake up or even during the day where you go, I don't really feel like loving you right now at all. In fact, if you would go and leave me alone, that would be really helpful right now. I don't have those moments of eureka, beautiful love and walking around the house and joyful and and, uh, but we, we do have those moments, right? We have those moments where our children make us so proud and we're so, we love them so much. And they're, they're just, there's, there's those moments, but they're not every moment and they're not every day. And the same is true in your marriage. You can do it as a parent. You can love unconditionally and you can love them completely. You can love them even when you don't feel like loving them. But when we get into marriage, all of a sudden, we have to have these feelings. We have to have them reciprocate. And if they don't reciprocate, we're out of here. How would that work as a parent? I mean, if I had a little baby who was three months old and saying, okay, you won't even go a bike ride with me. You won't talk to me. All you do is lay there. I'm out of here. You're on your own, kid. Good luck. See, what I'm trying to show you is you can do this. You do do it. But we get into a marriage and all of a sudden we have this 50-50 thing and we say, you know what? If you don't do your part, I'm out of here. That's not it. It's a covenant. You've had to do these actions of love regardless of your feelings and therefore you have a deep feelings of love for them. Parents already know how to self-sacrifice and give unconditional love. Your marriage vows are a promise that you will do this in your marriage whether you feel like it or not. It's not a declaration that I love you today, right now. Of course you do. If you don't, if you, on your wedding day, you're an idiot. Right? The pastor were to say to you, do you love him? I don't know. Got to think about it. Well, let's cancel the ceremony, right? The point is, we're talking about 10 years from now when you get... Well, let me give you an illustration. Robertson McQuillan was uh, the, the president of Columbia College, and his wife, Muriel, had Alzheimer's. And he decided he wanted to take care of his wife through this Alzheimer's. And, you know, that ultimately leads to death. And so the board of the college says, no, 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 time out. We need you as president. Uh, we can get any, but we'll, we'll help you. We'll hire somebody to take it. She must not even know who you are. So it's not important that you do this. And he responded to the board. He says, I made, I made a promise till death to us part. 
And this is what he says. This is a quote. He says, As I watch her descend into oblivion, Muriel is the joy of my life. Daily I discern new manifestations of the kind of person she is. The wife I've always loved. I see fresh manifestations of God's love and grace. The God I long to love more fully. That's what death, that's what till death us parts means. It's a covenant. And you have to decide that. You can't make the other person decide. You can't change the other person. But you can change you. Secondly, find your ultimate filling, not in my spouse, but at the cross and in the gospel of Jesus. And that's the biggest problem. The biggest problem is we feel like, hey, wait a minute. I've been married for two years. I think I'm getting shortchanged. I think you're not coming through with what my, my uh, uh, picture of the agreement was. And, and, you know, they're not coming through. Of course they're not. See, only the gospel can fill our hearts with God's love so that we can handle it when our spouse fails to love us as they should. We're not saying that they're failing you. They probably are, and you're probably failing them. And when, if you're in this debate about you're failing me, no, you're failing me, you're arguing about the wrong thing. Only when we are filled with His gospel love will we find the freedom to see our spouse's sins and flaws to the bottom and speak to them. See, here's what God wants to do. This is quite incredible. And, 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 and this, for some of you, you'll go, oh, crap. I, I, my wife's going to get mad because I said crap twice. In the, actually, I said it three or four times, so edit that out, will you? Here's the thing. Here's what God wants to do in your marriage. God wants you, the two of you, to be used by Him to help each other become what He desires you to be. He wants you to be kind of holy sandpaper. He wants you to be transparent and honest with each other. Because here's the thing. You can hide your worst behavior, your worst sins from everyone else. But your spouse knows you. They know what you do. The question is, are you, are you are willing to address those issues in one another? Can you? Will you? Because that's what God wants to do. God wants to use you to help your spouse become what he desires her to be, or he to be. That's what, that's what he wants to do. And so we're in this little petty argument about, you're not doing this, you're not doing this, you're not doing this. Instead of saying, you know what, I'm asking you to give me what you can't give me that only God could give me. And you're failing me and I'm mad at you, but I shouldn't be mad at you, I should be mad at me. Because what I'm doing is I'm looking to you to be God. And instead of allowing God to fill me with his love and his forgiveness and his, his sacrifice, then I'm asking you to be that. But see here, here's the point. Paul's passage is so powerful because he basically says if the God of the universe can humble himself to the point of getting off the cross or getting off his throne, coming down to earth and climbing up on a cross, if he can humble himself that much, if he can look out for our needs, can you, can you do the same? He says to husbands, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. Husbands say, well, I, I, I would do anything for my wife. You won't take out the garbage. You won't help her with the groceries. You won't help her with the kids. You won't help her with this. You want to go play golf. You want to do this. I love her. Well, doesn't seem like it. 
But when we grasp the gospel, when we know we're loved by the most important person in the universe, when we daily experience his forgiveness, we're amazed. When we're amazed that he would die for us, and when we allow him to fill our lives, and we say, I am accepted by the most important person in the universe. I'm loved by the most important person in the universe. The most important person in the universe got off of the throne and came to earth and died on the cross for me. When, we're, when we say, can I sacrifice for my spouse? What did he sacrifice for me? Can I forgive my spouse? You don't know what they said. You don't know what they've done. And you know what Jesus said on the cross? He's, well, we'll get to that in a minute. So, find your ultimate filling, not in your spouse, but at the cross. Number three, do for your, do for your spouse what God did for you and Jesus, and the rest will follow. Well, what did Jesus do for me? Paul tells us in that passage. It's the action of love that we can promise to maintain every day. See, we can't promise that I'll feel love towards you, but I can't promise that I would choose to love you. See, actions, we could say, well, I don't feel like doing it. So, Listen, if you wait for your feelings for just about anything, none of us is going to go to work. None of us is going to do any kind of, uh, many of us are not going to do any kind of hygiene care. We're just going to lay around because we don't feel like it. But you know what? Uh, feelings uh, sometimes will follow proper action. Uh, we can't promise to feel love for somebody, but I can, I, I can guarantee this. Whoever you marry, you will fall out of like with them very quickly. You may say, you've done it to your kids. You, say, I, I, you may have even said this. I love you, but right now I don't really like you. And they know what you mean. Tim Keller puts it this way, until God has the proper place in my life, I will always be complaining that my spouse is not loving me well enough, not respecting me enough, not supporting me enough. This, this, is what we, this, is what, this, this is where the cross comes in. This is what we say. We say, when Jesus looked down from the cross, he didn't think, I'm giving myself to you because you are so attractive to me. No. He was in agony. He looked down at us denying him, abandoning him, and betraying him. In the greatest act of love in history, he stayed. He said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. He loved us not because we were lovely to him, but to make us lovely. In, in other words, when your spouse doesn't give you what you want and they say and do things and they treat you in a, in a disrespectful way, what do you do? You remember Jesus and what He did on the cross and you say, this is, they're not of the right mind, but if they were, they wouldn't have said this, they wouldn't do this. And all I can do is say, I will forgive you. Now, we have to talk about how we respect one another and all of that. I get that. That's not what I'm saying. But there is a point where we say, I can choose to forgive you. I can choose to love you, even if I don't have feelings, I can sacrifice for you. Why? Because I have somebody who did exactly that for me. And as I start in unleashing the gospel through me to them, what may happen is my, my emotions and feelings will follow and they will change probably. So I'm going to love my spouse in the same way he loved me from the cross. You must speak to your heart like that, and then you'll be able to fulfill the promises. You see, only when you see the cross will you have the example and the power and the desire to do what you know you need to do. The power of the gospel in me acted out is able to transform the heart of my spouse. And that's why um, 
that's where it comes from. When the power of the gospel, when the, by the power of the gospel, our, our spouse experiences the same kind of truthful yet committed love, it enables them to show us that same kind of transforming love when the time comes. What will, you, what will change your marriage? You. As you allow Him to fill you and change you. Because you can't change them, but you can change you. And as He changes you, you may find that your spouse will be sanctified by you. They will experience the forgiveness, sacrifice, and love that you experience like never before. And that may, You know, they asked Michelangelo one time when he was doing the Statue of David, they said... Uh, um, uh, how did you get your inspiration or how did you do it? He said, I looked inside the marble and just took away the bits that weren't David. Now, what we tend to do when we get married is we have this makeover idea of our spouse. Uh, and we say, you're going to become made in my image. And maybe women do that more with men than men with women. I don't know. That being said, that's not what the gospel is, is. See, it's not our job to say, we want to make you into what I want you to be. Our job is to help them become what God wants them to be, what God is designing them. He, the, Bible, the Bible says in Ephesians 2.10 that God has created us to be His masterpiece, and He's called you as His spouse to be one of God's greatest tools to help your spouse become the masterpiece that God is designing. Now, have you ever thought of your marriage that way? Have you ever thought of your role in the marriage as that? Because that's a servant's role. It's no longer saying, I want to make you into something like a robot. Will You will serve me and give me exactly what I want. I may or may not reciprocate. Doesn't really matter, which is the marriage that we hear about today. Instead, we say, no, my role in this marriage is to serve you as Christ served me, to love you as Christ loved me, to forgive you as Christ forgives me, and to help me, you have God used me to help mold you into what God desires you to be, to become the masterpiece that God desires you to be. That's my role in the marriage. Can you imagine if you begin to unleash that? If you say, you're not where you should be, of course you're not where you should be, because neither one of us is where we should be. We're both sinners, and if we've entered into this relationship, of course we're both messed up to a certain extent. But if we both are, are, are looking at it and saying, I want you to become what God wants you to be. And, and, and don't we do that for our kids, I hope? Now, this is where the dads kind of get it wrong. I want my son to be the greatest baseball player ever. Well, you know what? It's not going to happen, probably. Because he's into drama. He's a great actor, but he's never going to be a baseball player. Sorry, Dad. Better like drama, because you're going to a lot of plays. Is that Okay. No, I want him to be this. And you say, the fathers don't exasperate your children. Well, how do you do that? Because you try to make them into something that God never designed them to be. So you get that with your kids. You want your kids to grow up to be healthy and respectful and, 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 and to be good people. But you want them most of all, hopefully you want them most of all, to love God and to be what God designed them to be. Because if they become what God designed them to be, they're going to live the life that God designed for them. Well, don't you want that for your spouse? Or are you too selfish? See, it, goes, it comes back to selfishness. You can only do this as you daily experience His love, forgiveness, and sacrifice in your life. 
The rest comes spilling out supernaturally. You can't do it. You know, the, the greatest command Jesus gave was this. You must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your mind. This is the first and the greatest commandment. The second is equally as important. Love your neighbor as yourself. Now, some people see three commands there. The first one is love God. The second one is love yourself. The third one is love your neighbor. Those three commands. And I've heard that. If, you, know, I, I, you know, people have made a case for it. I, I don't think that's what he's saying. I think when you take this in, in conjunction with the Philippians passage we read, basically Paul says we default to selfishness. We don't, you know, we're, we look out for ourselves pretty, you know, unless you're emotionally unhealthy, you know, you, you tend to look out for yourself. It's me first, me marriage, right? And, and essentially what Paul's saying is when you begin to understand who God is, how much he loves you and what he's done for you, and you begin to worship him, you begin to love God, and you begin to, to worship God, and you begin to acknowledge God, and when he begins to fill your life, you will get the power from God to be able to love, to forgive, to sacrifice to the other people in your life get the power from God to do it. In other words, what I'm saying is you can't, really, you can't really love others until you really learn about who God is and love Him and worship Him and find your power and your place in Him. When you find your power and place daily in Him, and, and daily you say, God, I need your forgiveness today. God, I need your love today. God, I need to reflect upon the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross today. I need to be overwhelmed and amazed by that because now, if I've just done that and, and things happen, I can say, oh, I can, can forgive you. Look at what he did for me. I can love you in spite of what you are doing because he loved me in spite of what I was doing to him. And, and so the point is this. I don't think that Jesus is saying here, you have to learn to love yourself. I think what he's saying is you have to learn to love God. And as you learn to love God, you will find out who you are in this universe and you'll have the power and you'll have the example and you'll have the desire to love others because you naturally default to selfishness. You do. I told you the answer is easy. I told you I was going to tell you something you didn't want to hear about yourself, but it's true. And you know it's true. You can't do one without the other. You can't love others unless you are in a love relationship with God. You're going to struggle to really love, to really forgive. But conversely, once you experience His love, once you're filled by His love and forgiveness, once you understand his sacrifice, you will be filled up to the point where you'll be able to love and forgive and sacrifice for your spouse. And that's where it comes from. You can't manufacture it. And the feelings may or may not come. That's not the, the important driver. The important driver is that God is filling you. Part of the problem is we're not relying upon God. We're trying to do it on our own energy. We're trying to say, well, if I feel motivated, I'll do it. If I don't feel motivated, I won't. And you'll never get motivated that way. It only comes as you allow the gospel to fill you. And you are amazed by it. You're stunned by it every day. And you are empowered by the gospel. And you turn to your partner and you say, my job is to serve you, to help you to become what I told you. The greatest problem in my marriage right now is me, and it's selfishness. It's the same in yours. It doesn't matter if you're in a marriage. The biggest problem in any relationship you have is you're too selfish. So you can go out and not be selfish or you can allow God to help you see your heart, to help you heal your heart, to help you bring some of that forgiveness and love and sacrifice into your relationships. And when you do, it will transform your marriage, your relationship with your kids, your relationship with others. Stand with me. Let's pray.
So, Father, this is, a, <laughs> this is not ground-shaking information. And it's not necessarily something we rejoice in. Oh, thank God, I'm selfish. But it is something we need to hear. It is something that we need to look in the mirror and say, what have I just, what is the Word of God just revealed about my heart that I don't want to see, but I must see? Why is it that I'm not asking God to fill this emptiness in my life? And I'm asking another person, and they're failing me, and I'm mad at them. Help me, Father. Help me to look to You to find everything I need in You. Help me to reflect on passages like Philippians 2, where we get a picture of what really, real love and sacrifice and forgiveness really looks like. And may we be empowered. May we be just given everything that we need. May we just be in awe of you. And may that awe spread out in the lives of those around us, especially our spouses and our kids. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.